Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 43. We didn't feel necessarily the economic effect as quickly as um, uh, we felt the health effect. One of the challenges with that is that businesses are not all in one spot, they're all around the globe. They're in the north, they're in the south, they're in developing, they're in emerging economies, they're in least developed countries, they're large businesses, small businesses, some are in the informal economy as well. I'm Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. Now, the coronavirus crisis has affected MSMEs disproportionately and has revealed their vulnerability to supply and demand shock, particularly around liquidity and cash flow. It's estimated that around 40 to 60% of businesses might not reopen after the coronavirus pandemic. 200 million full-time job losses are expected between April and July 2020. Now, MSMEs are the backbone of our global economy, ensuring the day-to-day provision of so many goods and services around the world, estimated to contribute around 80% of OECD employment in many countries around the world, employing billions of people. More action is needed from governments, private sector leaders, and international institutions to ensure the continued viability of our MSMEs. Today, I'm delighted to be joined from Paris remotely by ICC's Secretary General, John Denton. John, welcome to Trade Finance Talks. Thanks very much for having me. I see you in the pre-COVID world and in the the during the COVID world. Well, yeah. So I think we were in a windowless room in New York and a lot has happened since. So I guess before we go into the main part, it'd be good just to catch up. I asked you what a day in the life of the Secretary General was for an organization representing 45 million businesses. How has your workday changed? Well, it's incredibly efficient, I must say. It still starts early and finishes late, but it's, um, it's lived quite differently. It's now effectively virtual. One of the first things I did when I took over at ICC was to run a campaign called Digital First. And I'm so glad I did because I shifted the whole organization to a digital platform in a pretty quick time, like six months, seven months. And then it took a little while to convince people about the benefits of it, but arguing with people about the need to start using video conferencing and using the digital Teams applications. And everyone said, oh, no, no, we have to have face-to-face. And then um, as soon as we we did the, uh, we went into confinement in Paris, and it was a lot earlier actually than, than in the UK, we were uh, so glad that we'd actually shifted the whole organization, not just in Paris, but globally into a digitally enabled organization. So we were able to operate seamlessly, but now quite differently. Frankly, it's really weird. There are things we can do now that we could never do before. Like last week, um, I organized an ICC conference where we created a Latin America action group, which brought together the business communities in 26 countries in one call, in one expanded Zoom call. Ten days before, I brought together business representatives from 34 countries in sub-Saharan Africa to create our ICC action group, four SMEs, by the way, both of them. And it's interesting, we could never have done that in the real world because to get everyone into the same location at the same time, the 
complexity in doing so would, is just enormous. However, to do it all on the virtual platform, it's like, of course we can do it. It's funny, everyone's kind of available. There's a lot of efficient use of time. And I do town halls now for all staff once a week for half an hour, which is a change in pace. We would do a town hall would be a bigger event once a quarter, but it's actually changing the way which we communicate. So it's actually, it's quite different. So not traveling, I can't say I'm missing it. It does make me wonder how effective, how efficient I was before. And it will, I think, will, as I was saying to you before we commenced, I mean, we are having some deep discussions now about how we will work on a continuing basis with our people. And um, the nature and the way, the way in which we work, I think, must be different. I guess moving on to the SMEs part of this, tell me about the ICC SOS or Save Our SMEs campaign and how you're working with other ICC national committees to amplify this campaign all around the world. We launched um, SOS, Save Our SMEs, about two weeks into the COVID-19 crisis. And as you know, one of the problems with COVID-19 is it's, it's not only pernicious and cruel in its human effects, it's also uh, the way it plays out is deeply troubling as well. It's asynchronous. It's coordinated across the world. It happens at different times and at different intensities in different parts of the world. And so in the Northern Hemisphere, obviously I'm sitting in Paris, we didn't feel necessarily the economic effect as quickly as um, uh, we felt the health effect. So the health effect, uh, the consequence of the lockdowns, etc., was pretty intense. Most country, most people hadn't realised was that before this even hit, COVID even hit, say a lot of emerging economies like in sub-Saharan Africa, the actual physical impact, the economic impact was already there because of the collapse of consumption, which destroyed a number of value chains, particularly the best examples always in, as an easy one, is in the garment industry, where the fact that people couldn't go out to shop in the US, which is the largest consumer market in the world, had an immediate impact on retailers, which had an immediate impact on their ordering, their inventories, on how they'd actually bring together their supply chains, all the way down to the millions of women, men and women in Bangladesh, in an economy which had actually, in a sense, bet on the garments industry. And quite quickly, you saw a million people out of work. And so at that point in time, as we saw the speed with which this was happening, we also realized that a number of policymakers had not fully understood that this was what we call a real economy shock, a shock to the real economy. And they were still looking at it through the prism of how they handled relatively successfully the global financial crisis in 08-09. But the reason we focused and uh, characterized this is to save our SMEs, because we had to shift their focus and help them understand that as policymakers, they are actually using the playbook from the wrong crisis. The playbook for the global financial crisis is not the playbook you need for a real economy crisis. In a real economy crisis, liquidity is actually key how you get the funds as quickly as possible into the real economy and saving jobs is actually critical. As you said before, and it's a truism, we can see even from a relatively significant but nowhere near as consequential shock like Hurricane Katrina, 60% of SMEs never reopened their doors after that shock. Imagine what this could be like, and that's why we had to shift the focus as quickly as we could on mobilising to help in the real economy and also mobilising the reality that 
this was not synchronous. And so we're going to have to deal with this different times and different places. And uh, one reason that's important for us is that not only are we concerned about saving lives here, we're also concerned about saving livelihoods. So we launched the Save Your Lives and Live, I mean, Lives and Livelihoods campaign simultaneously. And we started working with the WHO. All those sort of things we did all around Save Our SMEs. And frankly, we've had, I think, um, a pretty extraordinary impact with it. And uh, last week, in the midst of our action group on Latin America, we also announced our bold ambition to enable the digitization of a million SMEs, micro SMEs across the world because this is going to be another necessary step to save our SMEs. Not only do we need to rescue them, we now need to help them rebuild. And a lot of them are only going to have a chance if we can help them digitize. Let's go into a bit more detail on the trade policy and the digitization element of it. So what has ICC been doing to speed up some of those interventions that allow easier trade? So for example, customs and trade facilitation, economic policy changes, etc. One of the truisms of trade is that it still functions very much in an analog world. What that actually means, it's a paper-based world. Similarly with customs, they're both the essential elements of trade, both from the movement of goods and also the, um, the movement of documentation. This is all paper-based. The actual application for trade finance is often just paper-based and personal-based. The actual application for customs clearance, paper-based. For a lot of food, for example, food movements, you actually need what's called paper and wet signatures. Actually, that's the level, in a sense, of um, dominance of the uh, analog world in the trade world. So we've always we've been arguing for some time, I suppose under my leadership, I focus particularly on this shifting trade from analog to digital. We have uh, used this opportunity to, first of all, flex our own rules on trade finance to enable the shift to digital. We've also worked with the World Customs Organization to facilitate more access to digital. We've actually working with UNCITRAL on how you can actually pick up and ensure that uh, governments can give the same legal force of recognition to digital documentation as they do to paper-based documentation. We've worked hand in glove, for example, in India with the central agencies there to facilitate this as well. So in in a way, um, we really sped up more than anything else rather than um, suddenly come upon digitalization as an answer. We've sped up our whole process of facilitating the transfer of the trading world from analog to digital. There's still more work to be done. Because, you know, governments, and it's really interesting, just looking in Africa, for example, so we've been doing a fair bit of work on this African Continental Free Trade Agreement, which will be delayed. But we still think this is critical in terms of the economic trajectory for Africa and the support it might have. But what I was pointing out to policymakers there, the models already exist to do this. Like in Singapore, for example, they have effectively picked up the UNCTAD trial model laws on this area and are actually implementing them. You don't actually have to feel like you're a bleeding pioneer here. There's actually models all around the world you can pick up and use. You can actually dictate this from a policy position that you can simply recognise these documents and there is legal force. There are legal conventions that can support that and there are models elsewhere like in Singapore, etc. What's come out of the ICC DSI, the Digital Standards Initiative, since launching last year? Because I know we haven't heard a lot since announcing the setup of the new operation in Singapore. 
Well, DSI was always part of a hub of ours in Singapore. So we conceived of a Centre for Future Trade in Singapore last year. We actually folded into that our digital academy. And then we were working on a series of digital projects, the creation of blockchain solutions on compliance, the creation of a completely digitalised trade flows, the digitalization of shipping registers, all the elements that actually went to trade. The piece that we wanted to actually start getting focused on as well was on the policy side which is what the DSI is, the Digital Standards Initiative. We're working with a group of other people there to support that. We went out to the market for the, to identify the captain, and we're now in the last stages of moving towards appointment. So I would anticipate by the end of June, we'll be up and running. Uh, we'll have a, the head of the DSI initiative appointed. And that issue I was talking about before, about analog to digital, about looking at the various public policy levers that need to be pushed and the hard yards of standards development will be pretty well channeled then through the uh, through the DSR. We're quite, we look, we're very excited about it. That sort of rounds out our digital our um, centre for future trade in Singapore. And to be frank, what we're then looking at is the creation of another set of hubs around the world. But digital for us and Singapore go hand in hand. So I guess, what do you think are the key actions required by ICC to help its members reverse some of the downward trade patterns we're seeing as a result of this pandemic? You correctly point out that with the institutional voice of 45 million businesses, one of the challenges with that is that businesses are not all in one spot. They're all around the globe. They're in the north, they're in the south, they're in developing, they're in emerging economies. They're in least developed countries. They're large businesses, small businesses. Some are in the informal economy as well. And many of them are actually entrepreneurs seeking to build their, build their careers. So there's lots of different types of businesses. But for example, um, in emerging economies, one of the things we're particularly focused on was helping them build resilience into their business models. For a lot of businesses, they did not have access to business continuity plans. So one of the first steps we took was to ensure that we had a, um, an easy-to-use set of business continuity plans, which we were able to uh, make manifest and make available across the whole of all, so all the emerging economies with which we work. We also had them translated into six languages. We then worked with various UN agencies to ensure their distribution. So these are sort of things, these are kind of, there are a lot of practical things we're doing. I mean, there's going to be a really big issue, I think, in terms of the financing side. As you say, and I think it's truism that... Uh, most SMEs, micro SMEs really have about, some people say two months, the reality is often only two weeks, which is actually, it's pretty sharp there. So ensuring that they're thinking about their financing, as you know, in the end, a lack of cash is actually generally what kills businesses. Ensuring that they're actually thinking about those sorts of issues, ensuring that by having a business continuity plan, they improve their prospects for access to finance, and also realizing there are alternate sources of finance these days. It's not just banks. We've been talking a lot with the various e-commerce platforms. What we're trying to do is see if we can conceive of a best practice model that can operate across the globe where you sort of link up the learnings from um, an e-commerce platform operating in Turkey about how they've sought to support SMEs and micro-SMEs through payment terms, then apply that potentially in Africa where there's another set of African e-commerce payment platforms, then use some of that those learnings across in Latin America and elsewhere. What I'm saying there is we're looking at alternate forms of financing, making certain that they are aware of 
and know how and learn from each other about how to support SMEs and micro SMEs in the various economies in which they operate. In developed economies, it's a little different. I mean, part of that is actually policy. You know, some governments have done it extremely well. Some governments have been more challenged. I think you can contrast the challenges that a number of SMEs have had in accessing financial support in the United Kingdom compared to the extraordinary ease with which that has happened in Switzerland. You can just see the days saved and days matter when you're talking about two weeks and also the cost of actually going after those loans and going after those supports is actually pretty high for a number of companies as well. So we have to make that as easy as possible. So the practical things. Oh, sorry, I suppose what I'm putting is, first of all, recognising there's regional differences, there's size differences, there's actually availability, there's different sources of financing available, different countries have different tools, different businesses have different tools. So some supply chain uh, leaders have actually found ways of using their supply chains much more readily. And we've been very intent on ensuring that as many participants in their supply chains know about these different forms of access to finance and actually showing other supply chain leaders how they can use it. Because not all the answers will lie through access to the banking system. And certainly we found that for a number of economies, it's been challenged to actually access government-sponsored funds because of the relative inefficiency or the lack of speed, the lack of speed with which they've gone about uh, making those funds accessible. And also, some countries just don't have the fiscal headroom to make it, uh, uh, make it uh, sizable enough. You compare what um, the German economy... Well, you can, I can compare what Australia has done. Australia has done, I think, something like 25% G of, uh, has actually been made available compared to India, which is between 1% to 2%. So some countries just don't have the fiscal headroom to make available the levels of support that might be required. So we therefore have to think of different ways of helping companies and entities in those countries get access to finance support. I think that resilience piece, particularly for MSME exporters, is, is probably a really key take home, but also that upskilling in terms of moving now towards digital platforms. I guess, final question, I'm very conscious of time, but uh, I guess as an SME MSME exporter right now, what are the couple of pieces of advice you would give to them right now during these very uncertain times? The first thing is seek out financial support opportunities in your own countries. Chambers of Commerce will generally have access to that. Certainly the ICC will be able to direct you to the right place. Look into taking your business online. One reason we're starting this 1 million SMEs, micro SMEs, digitization is that we realize that a lot of companies think digitalization is actually very, very difficult. It's actually not. So we have to help them do that. But at the same time, understand that this will be a critical element, particularly when you still got lots of economies still in close down. And even as economies come out of close down, there are a number of citizens who do not feel confident enough to want to spend time out. Taking your business online is very important. And also start thinking about how you adapt your production and your own supply chains to meet the needs. You need to think that's all part of this resilience issue as well. You need to think about those three things simultaneously and actually get onto it pretty quickly. John, thank you very much for joining us on Trade Finance Talks TV. It's been a pleasure having you and hopefully the next time we speak will be in person. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com. 